Thank you all so much. Good morning again. Well, if you have not been with us recently or are maybe brand new this morning, you might not know that we are now in week two of a series called Together, which is a refresh and part of the LIFT initiative that our congregation has been participating in for now one full year. And you received, some of you, a booklet when you came in. Some of you got your booklets last week. And so I invite you to turn to page 23 in your booklets. That's where we will find ourselves at this morning. Uh, You'll also find a commitment card in the back of your pew or your seats or in the pockets uh, behind the seats up in the upper section. And uh, some of you made a commitment to lift a year ago. You know what this is. Um, Others, this might be new. And so in a couple weeks, we will come together as a congregation and either renew the commitments we made or invite some of us to perhaps make a commitment uh, for the first time. So that's a little bit of landscape about where we are today and what the booklets and the papers and all the sorts of things uh, throughout the room are leading us to do. Uh, But if you would, let's uh, come together in prayer and And um, then we'll begin our time with one another in God's word. Lord Jesus, thank you again uh, for the gift of this morning, for the gift of baptism. We pray specifically for Aiden as he grows in his life that he would come to know you more. Um, We're grateful for the friends and the strangers alike gathered in this room. We are together, um, together in worship, together um, in commitment, and um, together in service to you. So Lord, bless um, our thoughts, our conversations, um, open our hearts and minds to your word this morning. And may we be um, wise, generous hearts and minds because of this time we share together. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Like I said, you can turn to page 23 if you want. There's a few questions and space for note-taking if that's something uh, that you want to do. If you are online, uh, we invite you to go ahead to the Lyft page, and you can find this as a digital resource. And also, I want to give just a quick shout-out to our friends in Butterfield uh, this morning. They're joining us via video, and you all have your booklets and all that good stuff over at Butterfield as well. So we're grateful to be with all of you this morning as well. Um, Our passage is from John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Uh, This may be a familiar story for some of you. Some of you, this might be a brand new story. And if that's the case, I'm I'm particularly excited because this is one of the most treasured and best known stories um, from the miracles and the ministry and the life of Jesus. It's one of the few stories that shows up in scripture in all, all four gospels. Um, And it is a story about the way Jesus interacted with the people and the crowds and the disciples who were with him and the people who followed him as he did his ministry. So let's begin our time together with the first four verses of our passage for today. This is the word of the Lord. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. So anytime we get to God's word, uh, the best thing to do when we start studying scripture is to stop for a minute and go, what is happening here? What's going on at the time when this passage came to us, when it was originally written? What do we need to know about the situation? 
And so the author, John, starts out by saying sometime after this. And the this is simply a set of miracles and teachings that Jesus provided to growing crowds of people. It's an indication that there's a little bit of a shift happening here in the ministry of Jesus. And what is happening is that more and more people are starting to hear about Jesus. He had healed a paralyzed man right before we get to this passage for today. And so he's amassed a bit of a following. People are curious, who is he? Skeptics want to be sure they can trust him. Those in power are starting to become jealous of the power that Jesus has amassed. And other people who have great need, who want healings and miracles perhaps for themselves, or who just want to be near a man who could teach so wise and who could teach with such profound wisdom, they want to be near him. So he has amassed a large following. Probably... Like many public figures or celebrities today, Jesus experienced a bit of the paparazzi sort of scene that follows public figures today. I actually just finally finished watching The Crown on Netflix. And in this series about Queen Elizabeth that you don't need to know that much about, but what what you watch happen in this series is the crowds of people who follow the royal family and how they cannot get a minute alone. There's always cameras flashing and people shouting for autographs and handshakes and whatnot. And so this is a little bit of what Jesus is experiencing. He goes across the lake to get away from the crowd. Luke, in his retelling of this story, actually says, Jesus went out to a deserted place to be alone. The disciples go with him, but they try to separate for a minute from the crowd. But scripture tells us the crowds still follow him anyway. Jesus, of course, is God. So he wants to be present with all people, but he's also fully human. And like any one of us who might be followed by a crowd, he just needed a minute. But the crowds follow. John actually also points out that it is the Jewish Passover, which is going to come, um, it's going to become important in a f- in, in later on in this story. It's actually a bit of foreshadowing because later in the life of Jesus, it's because he's in town for the Passover when he gets arrested and um, is crucified. Um, it's also an indication the crowd that's following him might be a bit bigger than usual. And so the disciples are with him. What is he going to say? What are, what are we doing on the other side of the lake? I mean, what did the disciples think they were going to do when Jesus said, come on, let's, let's go to the other side of the lake? And the story continues in verse five. When Jesus looked up, saw a great crowd coming toward him, so everybody's still following, and he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test him, for Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. I find the next part of this exchange curious. Jesus looks up, sees that these throngs of people are making their way around the lake to find him, and he tosses Philip a question. Why Philip? I wonder if Philip thought, really? There's other people you could call out by name here. Why did Jesus ask Philip? We don't know exactly. Maybe he was a little more tangled in his heart at this moment than some of the others. Uh, This is actually where Philip is from. He's probably the disciple closest to where this is happening. So maybe Philip is the one that gets asked just because he might actually know where the local resources were to try to feed these people. Either way, we know that Jesus is sort of asking 
a rhetorical question here. He doesn't really think that Philip is going to answer to his satisfaction. And why does feeding all these people even matter? I mean, we all came here this morning. This is going to be about 70 minutes of your morning. If it goes longer than that, we might get some emails. We might hear about it. Maybe it goes 65 minutes if you're at the 1045 and it's the NFL season and the Bears are playing well and there's a kickoff at noon. Church doesn't last hours and hours and hours. Maybe there's a donut involved, but for the most part, you didn't come here hungry. And we also are a culture, group of people who might not struggle that much with hunger, if we're honest, anyway. But at the time of Jesus, if you were going to go listen to this rabbi's teaching, if you were going to follow somebody like Jesus, it could be at least a whole day, sometimes a multi-day event. In Mark's retelling of the gospel, he actually says that Jesus, or Mark's retelling of this story, he actually says that Jesus had been teaching all day long. Hungry people lose focus. So it's in Jesus' best interest to make sure they're well-fed. And some of them maybe were just temporarily hungry or hangry like we might get before lunch. Some in the crowd might have legitimately been in poverty and might not have been able to feed themselves at other times as well. And remember now uh, how John said it's the Passover festival. So to come to the Passover festival, the Passover itself would have been a week-long festival that was a pilgrimage that Jewish families might spend one or two days at. Maybe they would spend the whole week. They were certainly invited and hoped to spend the whole week. It would have been a multi-day journey to get there and then eventually a multi-day journey to get home. So you're looking at crowds of people who are going to be out of their homes from maybe seven, eight days to perhaps even a couple of weeks. So they would have likely, the ones who could afford to do it, brought food with them. My family, if we go anywhere for like two hours in the car, they pack like we're going away for months. I always get frustrated because when you want to run errands, I'm like, you guys, come on, let's go. And everybody's got to run back in the house and get a granola bar. I'm like, we're going to Target. You don't need to eat all the time. There's no Jimmy John's on the way. There's no Chipotle that you can stop at. There's no McDonald's drive through People brought food with them. So some of the people in this crowd had food with them somewhere or nearby. Where was that food? How far away was it? How many people in the crowd actually had those kind of resources hovering somewhere nearby them? And did Jesus ask Philip this question because he didn't trust the generosity of the crowd? Or was Jesus just pressing on Philip to see where his own heart and mind went? Philip, what do you see happening here? How are we going to feed all these people? And we know, of course, how this line of questioning goes when we know the answer. Anybody who's had a conversation with a kid, a child, a student, what do you see happening here? We already know the answer, but we want to see how they view the world. How do we solve this dilemma? What do you think? At times, it can get snarky, looking outside perhaps at a driveway covered in snow. I may have said to my 17-year-old recently, however will this driveway get shoveled? However, will that laundry find its way to the hangers in your closet? And it makes me giggle when people turn around like we don't really know the answer. Like I didn't already have it figured out that he was going to be shoveling. Mom, it's so heavy. The snow's so heavy. We'll never be able to do it. In human nature, on a more serious note, we're 
driven in some ways to look around and see the scarcity around us, uh, to see the complex issues of our time at first glance through the eyes of impossibility. There's no way to solve the problem of gun violence and school shootings. There's no way this issue in Israel and Palestine will ever end. I mean, it's been going on for thousands of years. There's always gonna be war somewhere in the world. I mean, we cannot possibly feed every single person in the world who's hungry. How do we ever get enough food to the right places to fill all the hungry bellies? I mean, it is, it is, it is impossible to think that we could ever educate everybody in the world. I mean, there's people who have to walk eight miles to school. Those people will never, ever find their way to school. Uh, on it goes, pick, pick your issue. Understandably, we see the world around us through human eyes, eyes filled with limits and barriers and division and impossibility. But God sees the world through holy eyes. Jesus is asking Philip this question through divine eyes. He asks Philip a divine question and he gets a very human answer. Verse seven, Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each person here, Jesus, to have a bite. And then another one from the crowd, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, speaks up. He's like, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish. How far will that go among so many? And he's not asking because he actually thinks Jesus is gonna do a miracle with it. He's looking at Jesus with the same line of questioning. How far do you think that's gonna go? Not very far. It's gonna take half an annual salary. Imagine you're standing with Philip, you're as exhausted as Jesus is, and you've just made your way around the lake, and you don't quite know what's happening, but these throngs of people are coming, and Jesus is like, how are we going to feed all them? And you're thinking, we're not, Jesus. We're not going to feed all of them. In Matthew's account of the story, he actually adds a layer to it and says, it's starting to get late. Tell people, Tell Jesus, tell these people to go home. In Matthew's retelling, they're actually asking Jesus to send everybody home. And Andrew underscores the scarcity. There's a kid over here with five barley loaves and two fish. Barley loaves? I don't even know what a barley loaf is, I'll be honest. But when you look into this just a little bit, barley when you would make bread at this time out of barley loaves, this is what those who struggled with resources and were in poverty did. A barley loaf was not a good loaf of bread. It was an indication that you were poor and it was the only kind of bread that you could put together. And when you start to unpack the language in the original Greek in here, you find out that the description of this boy is that he was very young. We're not talking a 17, 18 year old teenage boy, we're talking a kindergarten, first grade little guy. And the fish are described as small, probably at this time salted fish, maybe like sardines or something that would have added a little flavor, but you've got a little kid with five terrible loaves of poverty bread and two little sardines. And so here they stand then before Jesus, soaked in a scarcity mindset. It's late, Jesus wants to feed everybody. There's a young boy standing here and Jesus, scripture says, tells the people to sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place 
says in verse 10, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. This is a time in history where men counted, women didn't. There were probably 15,000 people there because women and children would not have been included in the head count, but they were certainly there. So you're actually looking at a crowd more like 15,000 people. I wonder what they were thinking. Probably a mixture of exasperation and anticipation. Because on the one hand, they had just seen him not too long ago heal a man who had been paralyzed his entire life. Jesus has it in him to perform miracles. They know this. Yet on the same time, at the same end of it, they're tired, they're exhausted. They're not expecting a miracle in this moment. They've got a little kid standing with them and Jesus telling everybody to sit down. Sit down and do what, is my guess. Watch three or four people take some of this lousy barley bread and pass it around. What good is that gonna do? You have thousands of people here. What are they gonna sit down and do? And think for a moment about the boy. I mean, he must have come forward somehow to offer this bread. If everybody else is trying to sort themselves out and maybe jockey for position or see how they can get close to Jesus, and there's a little kid that makes his way through the crowd. His shoulders probably as high as maybe our thighs are, bumping his way through the crowd. Something in him sees what's going on and carries what he's got up forward. And I wonder, is he listening to them try to figure this out? Does he hear Jesus ask the question, how old really was he? Did he have some childlike awe in him that allowed him to see the magnitude of need and his ability to make a tiny dent in it? I don't think that little kid thought there was gonna be a miracle either, but something in him thought, well, there's hungry people and I got five loaves of bread, so I'm gonna worm my little tiny kid body up front with my bread and my two little fish and I'm gonna give it to Jesus and these disciple guys to see what happens. And Jesus takes the bread, foreshadowing of the Last Supper, and he breaks it, he gives thanks, he passes it around, and miraculously, there's enough bread to go around. There's enough bread to go around. Have you ever stopped for a minute, if you've heard this story before, and thought, how exactly did that happen? I do not doubt for one minute that the God of the universe does miracles, our Lord does miracles, but what kind of miracle was this? Was there like an easy bake oven somewhere and all of a sudden little muffins started coming out? I mean, in Exodus, God gives uh, the, the miracle of bread and uh, we're told in that story how it actually happens. Manna, bread from heaven, comes down like rain and, they, and it lands at their doorsteps and they wake up every morning and they bring it in. There's no description here of what happens. Does Jesus literally start pulling bread out of the sleeves of his robe? And there's more fish too. What is the miracle here? How does this actually happen and why? Wouldn't this be good information to know? Like when I get to heaven, I wanna ask John, why didn't you tell us exactly how this happened? Or is it possible that the biggest miracle in this story was that hearts were softened and a crowd of people saw a little boy with nothing give everything he had. And remember, it's the Passover festival. People probably had some food in their pockets. And they started digging into their pockets and feeding everybody around them. We don't know, but that's another option in this story, that the miracle was that the hard hearts that held the bread tight in the pockets 
loosened the grip, and together the entire crowd was fed. We don't know the nature of the miracle, but that's another option. Verse 12 says this, when they all had enough to eat, Jesus said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And after the people saw this sign, this thing that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, then knowing that they intended to make him their king by force, as if to grab him out of the crowd and dub him king right there, he didn't want that to happen. He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He once again got away from the crowd. What do we do with this passage? What do we do with the scarcity mindset here? The scarcity mindset sometimes we share as well. Miroslav Volf writes that we live in a world that teaches us to see one another as commodities. That the default of our existence together is to wonder sometimes, what can I get out of you? What exchange of relationship, of goods? It doesn't happen every time we meet anybody, but there's a little bit of jockeying that goes on in our world. If I do this for you, what will you do for me? Robert Kuttner writes, the person who volunteers time, who helps a stranger, who agrees to work for a modest wage out of commitment to the public good, eventually begins to feel like a sucker. Wolf goes on to say that in our world today, it can be said that you don't get what is fair, you get what you negotiate. And to give and to contribute to the good, the whole, the, the flourishing of others, some people might say that's to lose. And that's not what we believe in church, but that's what our wider society and culture sets us up sometimes to believe. In our consumer-driven culture, it works to capture every inch of our attention for the exchange of goods. Every single time I go on Instagram, I see five sweaters that will change my life. And shoes, and I'm like, oh, this is kind of cute. I bet I'd look good at work in that. And then I'm off looking for something. The algorithms, the technology is designed to have you go, ooh, I need that. I mean, mathematics and all the wonderful things we know, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not always sure even what an algorithm is, but I know it's designed to make us buy things. It's the air we breathe in our country. Here's some interesting um, data. 92% of all American households own at least one car. The size of the average American home tripled in the last 50 years. There are five times the number of storage facilities in the United States than there are Starbucks coffee shops. There's a lot of Starbucks. There are five times more storage units to store the things that we don't have the room and are tripled in size houses to store. We have more televisions in our homes in the United States than we do people. And the average home has 300,000 items in it. And over the course of a lifetime, the average American will spend a total of 153 days looking for lost items. <laughs> I, I think I might double that. My kids, I always have to ping my phone and my kids are like, it's up here. I'm not telling you this to make us feel guilty. You guys, I love my stuff. I have stuff, I love it. I don't want to get rid of it. 
But to put in perspective this interesting thing that happens in the United States. We are one of the most sophisticated economies in the world. And we operate like we're running out of stuff. I have a coat in my closet that I don't wear, but I also haven't donated it, because someday I might need it. I don't think that's true. Think about this for a little bit. The God of the Bible is a God of abundance, not scarcity. Jesus asked Philip that question with an abundant mindset, and Philip answered it in a scarcity mindset. It is part of our human nature to grip whatever bread God has given us and hold it tight in our pockets. What if I need it someday? What if those people over there don't eat the bread but they drop it on the ground? That was a waste. What do I do? What if something happens? What if I don't have enough? Just like Sue Ann mentioned, uh, my husband and I are putting, eventually gonna put three kids through school. I have a sophomore in college, I have a son graduating from high school this year, and I have a high school sophomore. We are going to pay eight years of college tuition if they graduate on time. Four of those years are gonna be double tuitions, which makes my husband and I just close our eyes. And I don't know how we're gonna do it. And so a year ago, when we came to this Lyft initiative, and we sat right over there as a family, and we had agreed before we got here on what contribution we wanted to make to this initiative. And we agreed on a number as a family. And then we got ready to come forward and put our card in the basket. And as I was looking around the room, my family huddled together and they doubled the number on the card. I flipped out. <laughs> we don't have that. We, how are we gonna do that? Do you understand how much that is? But we have also been a family who's been involved at this church for 20 years. And my children have grown up here. And they were baptized here, and they were confirmed here. And all of the wonderful things we do for young people here, we wanted to be part of a solution. We wanted to bring our barley loaves and our fish forward to see what God could do. And together in this congregation, we look around at a world that is torn by violence and war and chaos, and we have almost 80 mission partners who are in some of those places doing God's work to bring peace and healing and restoration there. And we look at the complex issues of resourcing and poverty and need within the radius of this church and in the city we live in, and we know that when we bring our bread and fish here, that people are going to use it to do good in the world. And we take in the pain of watching people in our world struggle with cancer and death and loss and grief and addiction and depression, and we know that when we sit in the crowd and we bring our barley loaves forward, God does great things with that through this place. No single person, even the most well-resourced person, can change the world on their own. And this story has so many beautiful pieces that we can take from it. But one of the most remarkable parts of this story is that one boy who came forward and went first triggered a wave of generosity and everybody loosened up their hands a little bit, and the whole crowd was fed. 
the whole world's needs were met. I wonder if they were like wiping the bread off their face, like, oh, this is pretty good. We got a lot left over. There was stuff left over. And what did the disciples say when they were picking the pieces up and putting them back in the basket at the end of it all? Can you believe this guy? I mean, what was that kid's name after all? What a wave of generosity Jesus tipped off through that kid. So this together journey that we're on is a curiosity about what God is going to do when together we bring our resources and we bring what we have and we go before the Lord and we say, I know I hear the scarcity mindset of even the disciples saying, this can't be done. And we show up with what we have and say, yeah, this can be done. And together, if we're all able to do that, we can make a dent and we can meet the needs of the world around us that is so desperate for the love and the peace and the compassion and the joy that we find here in our Lord Jesus. So I invite you to consider that this morning. Take that book home with you. Wonder about that this week. I'm going to pray and then I'm gonna give you a quick note about a video that we're about to see. But first, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the gift of this story for a boy um, thousands of years ago who stepped forward with a mindset of abundance that came from your heart. Lord, we know that just as a crowd was fed then, um, we too can feed the hungry crowds of our time. So Lord, equip us together to take a step forward in faith and figure out what that means alongside one another, alongside you, doing our best and letting you multiply it in only the way that you can. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just uh, right before the um, worship team comes up and closes us out with our final song, uh, we have a great video this week, a wonderful story of a person in our congregation um, who tilted their heart toward generosity, who um, brought their bread forward um, and wondered and asked this same question. And you'll get to hear a wonderful um, example of what that looks like. So, amen. My name is Caitlin McCarthy, and I came to Christ Church, I'd say, six, seven years ago when I was in high school, one time. But then I went away to college, and now I'm back home. I was looking for somewhere to find a church home. So that kind of led me to go into Christ Church at five, and I really was going through a stage in my life where I was just open to anything and was really just looking for that spiritual connection. And growing my relationship with God had become more of a focal point in my life. And I thought, why not learn more about what this church has to offer and if there's groups that I could be a part of. And I've joined the 20s group and I've made some great friends who are my age who are going through these similar stages of life. And we've just had a ton of fun together from you know Friday nights just hanging out as 20s girls and going to Bible study a lot of the weeks and just growing relationships with the Lord and just growing relationships with each other and about Three weeks later, they talked about go trips, and when the opportunity was given to me to go to Malawi and build relationships with women on the other side of the world and see how they live every single day, I said, it's a no-brainer, let's go. I brought my sister along with me, but we both looked at each other when we got there and we were like, what did we do? 
We know we're here for a reason, but this is scary. Being on the other side of the world from our family in a country that we don't speak the language and we have no idea what we're about to embark on. But I felt God the most the next morning on Sunday at church. This is my journal and I had like first two days of entries and I said, Lord, I can feel your presence. We came on a paper Sunday and paper Sunday in Malawi means that they're all gonna gather and it's their day to give. And they brought the big giving basket and people took turns one by one and they danced with their money and they were singing and laughing and just celebrating the idea of giving. And to then go home that night and realize that a lot of these people don't even have the money to feed their families. They don't even have the money to send their kids to pay for their school fees, but they're giving and happily giving to their church so that they can put a roof on their church. We had the opportunity to witness that generous giving. That was so special. I felt God in that moment, in that day, so much with the giving, with the generosity, with the kindness of the Malawians. I always want to give back in some sort of way to help make this world a better place. To be able to have the opportunity to give back is one of the biggest blessings that the Lord has given me. The way I give, I got to see the impact abroad and where those dollars are going. It makes me want to give more. It makes every dollar feel worth it. When you have those moments of vanity and say, well, you know, this month I might not want to give, but you stop yourself because you're like, no, people need it. Malawians need it. The folks in Kenya, they need it. The folks in Mexico, they need it. The folks in the inner city of Chicago, they need it. There's a lot of people in this world. There's a lot of ways to give, but giving through a lift commitment and giving to Christ Church, you know your dollars are going to a wonderful cause.